You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Today's podcast is brought to you by Ovation Fertility, a leader in the field of IVF lab services. Ovation partners with some of America's leading fertility specialists to provide a range of services to support fertility treatment, including fertility testing, IVF, egg donation, surrogacy, genetic testing, and long-term storage of reproductive material. You can learn more about Ovation at OvationFertility.com. Hi, everyone. We're back with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Abby Eblen from Nashville Fertility Center. And today I'm joined with my fashionable, feisty, flamboyant co-host, Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Hello. I love your alliteration. (laughs) (laughs) And Dr. Carrie Bedient from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas. Hi. I looked those adjectives up just so I could have something interesting, you know, to which I, you guys fit all those adjectives though, but I looked all those up so I would have something funny, you know, to kind of stay. <laughs> so we were sitting around talking just a minute ago about different rituals that we do. And we typically do this podcast on Sundays for the most part, we record on Sundays. And so I was talking about my ritual to carry about every Sunday morning, I always water my plants because that's the one time I know that I'll usually be around and I usually have time to do that. And so tell me what some of your all's rituals are. What do you guys do? Your plants are all probably alive if you actually water them every week. Yeah, I, I try to. Yeah, they do pretty well. And I have like, I really, when I count them, I have about 30, but like oh my goodness. Six, six or eight. I mean, it sounds like a lot, but it's really not that. I mean, six or eight of them are like, you know, orchids that I hate to throw away. So I'll keep watering them. And every now and then I'll have one that'll rebloom. And so I just keep hoping every week that I'm going to see new blooms on my orchids. But, <laughs> but it really didn't take that long. So what do you guys do? I can't think of like a weekly ritual, but like, I'm like obsessed with like, if I'm going to cook in the kitchen, I have to clean the kitchen for like, it has to be like completely nice for me to cook. And then I can do my thing. It's just like this piece thing. Do you cook often Susan or is that a rare event? Do you really? Yeah. Everybody else in the house helps, but yeah, I'm, I'm the main fixer of food at my house. Impressive. Green Chef kind of cooks for us. And my <laughs> husband's mostly responsible for making sure the Green Chef does what he's supposed to. Ah, what about you, Carrie? I don't know that I have any specific rituals. I know that I like certainly whenever we leave on vacation, my house has to be spotless because I don't want to come back to a disaster zone. And I kind of find myself usually every Thursday night, Friday morning going through and just picking everything up because I know we're going to be home over the weekend and I want to be in a clean space because when everything around me is cluttered, my brain is cluttered and I don't like that. And so my room, my bathroom area is always very nicely picked up. The rest of the house is somewhat of a disaster because I don't live alone, (laughs) which I'm glad of. I adore my family, but Oh my God. Um, So I would say like picking up Thursday night, Friday morning and getting ready for the weekend is a pretty routine thing that happens every single week. Cool. Well, very good. So today I think we're going to do a question episode. Do we have some questions, Susan? We have lots of questions. Let's see how many of these we can book out. All right. So our first one is, I had a sperm analysis test. 50% of my sperm are active, 20% are sluggish, while 50% are dead. 
I don't think that adds up. 70% (laughs) has no tail and 30% are normal. Please, what is the solution to my problem and is it reversible? Wait, so what was the count? Because the percentage moving, I mean, 50% moving with only 20% sluggish, like let's say they mean a 30% progressive motility here. Yeah. Like that's not actually that bad. That's not bad at all. Did they give a count in there anywhere? No. And then 70% has no tail and 30% normal. I mean, honestly, you have moving sperm. And when you look at morphology or shape, it is normal for most sperm to be abnormally shaped. And so, like we all said, you didn't mention a count, but if your count is normal, I mean, there are some vitamins and supplements you can take. Um, there are, you know, motility support blends, L-carnitine, vitamin E, different things like that, that could potentially help sperm function. But this doesn't sound like a terrible sperm problem. So that begs the question, if this is a fertility problem, then it may not be a sperm issue, you know, provided your concentration is good. So yeah, so I would make sure that your partner is checked out and then get more details about your sperm count too and have somebody look at that, the whole picture, not just part of the picture. If you look on Google, which, you know, sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad, we used to do this thing called a sperm penetration assay. And that's really kind of what the underlying question is. You know, if the sperm is misshapen, does it just not penetrate the egg well? Can the sperm not swim to the egg? You know, does that contribute to infertility? And we know now that really a sperm penetration assay test is not a useful test. It's one of those things that never dies on the internet, but it's not something that we really do anymore as part of clinical medicine to give us useful information about how your sperm actually functions. Absolutely. All right. So our next one is I've had two chemical pregnancies with IUIs, IUI cycles three and four. Each time a measurable HCG was quite low, around 11. When you have an IUI, do you have implantation or is it possible to have a positive pregnancy test without implantation? So I would say no. It has to start to grow at least and you have to make HCG for it to be measurable. So you do have some implantation. It's just not a good implantation potentially if it's biochemical. If you're using Avadrel or HCG to trigger, you could have a positive HCG level and not have implantation. But that'd be a false positive. Exactly. It'd be a false positive. But essentially for you to naturally be creating HCG, implantation has to happen somewhere. Yeah. All right. Our next question. I'm a 37-year-old that has been trying to conceive for almost a year. My partner is as healthy as can be, but I have a blocked left fallopian tube or so the HSG says. All other tests are showing I ovulate every month. How do I know if I'm actually releasing an egg or could it be in ovulation? I'm at a loss. Please help. So if you're having a period every month and it's pretty regular, odds are pretty good that you are releasing an egg. I mean, you can do a day 21 progesterone level and just check to see you know, periodically if you're releasing one. But usually if you've got pretty regular cycles, that's a reliable indication that you're ovulating. Why is a day 21 progesterone level helpful, Gary? How does that tell her that she's ovulating? Before you release an egg, your progesterone should be quite low. Once you do release the egg, the space that the egg is released from out of the ovary becomes functional. So prior to the egg's release, it's producing estrogen. After the egg's release, it produces both estrogen and progesterone. So if you go from having a low level to having a high level, that's a pretty reliable indication that you have ovulated. And so that's why we check it at that point. And there is some variation. I mean, if you have an even longer cycle, then it may not be day 21. We may push it back couple days beyond that. But for someone who's got a classic 28-day cycle, usually day 21 to 24 is when we want to get that level. And it's a simple blood test, easy. 
I would say in this scenario that you're describing, ovulation is probably not the issue. It's probably more getting egg and sperm together or them developing normally and implanting. Mm-hmm. All right. Our next one. Hi, everyone. Just started listening to your podcast. I'm 38. I conceive normally at 34 and I'm a mom to a wonderful three-year-old girl. I've been trying to conceive since I was 37 and through the RE workup discovered I have a lot of scar tissue from my emergency C-section. It was removed laparoscopically and was cleared to start IUI. One medicated cycle resulted in a chemical pregnancy and the following one didn't stick. I'm now on my first IVF cycle and was able to retrieve four embryos of varying grades that have been sent off for PGTA testing. I am worried about whether on top of my ovaries being older and more prone to producing abnormal eggs, my uterus itself not being 100% because of the previous scarring. Should I expect to have to complete multiple egg retrievals because of my age? Thanks in advance. So that's a bunch of questions all all thrown in. (laughs) So it's a question about the uterus, a question about the eggs, a question about the scar tissue. I think the biggest concern is more the age, her age, she's 38, and the number of genetically normal embryos, because science tells us about 80% of her embryos are not going to be genetically normal. Regarding the scar tissue from her C-section, I'm not quite, there's different things that could be like a poorly healed C-section scar, or it could be scar around her tubes. So I don't know what impact that has because I don't know specifically what the scar tissue was. If the scar tissue was noted truly laparoscopically, not hysteroscopically, where we were looking inside the uterus, at the point you're at IVF, it really doesn't matter. You can have a pelvis full of adhesions and we're bypassing all the stuff that scar tissue was going to be impacting. Now, if you had scar tissue inside the uterus, that could be an issue. And then as to your comment about having to do multiple cycles, I think it really depends on what your reproductive goals are at this point. If you are 38 and wanting to have two or three more children, then I would absolutely probably, depending on how many embryos you get. I mean, with a PGTA embryo, depending on your lab, you're probably going to have somewhere between a 50 to 70% chance of taking home your baby. And so if you have one or two um, normal embryos and you're wanting one baby, I would try to transfer. But if you have one or two normal embryos and you're wanting two or three more children, you'd probably be wise to bank embryos for future use because no matter how hard it is to get pregnant right now, it's going to be even harder a couple years down the road. I would agree with all of that. All right. My fertility clinic does not test for DNA fragmentation unless the patient requests it. Even with elevated fragmentation results, they do not recommend lifestyle changes or using Zymot. I know other clinics will not begin treatment until fragmentation tests are done. Why would one clinic have such a different approach to fragmentation versus another? Well, this is a great question because all three of us don't agree on this. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the answer to your question. Because you can ask three reproductive endocrinologists and they'll give you three different answers. So let's each answer this the way we would with our patients so that she can kind of see how we differently approach this. We typically don't do DNA fragmentation because I kind of feel like it's one of those things where, yeah, you can do the test and yeah, you can maybe find that there's a lot of DNA fragmentation, but the problem is there's no way you can really clinically treat it very well because you can't pick the sperm that are good and the ones that are not. Uh, You know, I certainly think it's wise and we tell patients from the get-go to take antioxidants and sometimes those may be beneficial for DNA fragmentation, but there's just not a lot you can do to treat it. And so that's why I typically don't, I can't justify paying the money for the test if it's not going to change what I'm going to really do. 
So with my patients, I routinely don't offer sperm fragmentation because again, it's not really going to change what I do. I've typically already counseled them on the lifestyle changes, stop smoking, stop with the other substances, moderate exercise, antioxidants, like all of those types of things. So the lifestyle changes are kind of inherent in there. When the Zymoc came out a couple of years ago, I remember talking to some of the creators and being really excited about it. Of hey, this is going to change the game. There were some preliminary studies that showed that it did better. We repeated those studies in our lab and we found not a single one of them held up. And so why would I do something that costs money for people when there's no benefit to it? And so I was actually really disappointed because I was hoping to see great things from that and it didn't. And so, you know, I said my four letter words and we moved on. So I'm more of a believer in DNA fragmentation. <laughs> no, I don't test everybody for DNA fragmentation. I tend to test men who are older, men who have lifestyle issues that I think increase fragmentation, because I think sometimes having that tangible result actually does provide some motivation for changing lifestyle. And for people who have health issues like diabetes, high blood pressure, things like that, that can also contribute to fragmentation. Now, I do use Zymot for people who have DNA fragmentation. I've had people that I haven't been able to get pregnant without using the Zymot device. And when we used it, whether it was on IUI or IVF, and it worked. The Zymot device is pretty darn cheap. And so I think it's not that much of an expense. How much does it cost out of curiosity? I don't even know because I've never used it. I think it's like $150 or something like that. It's a pretty small expense in, in the grand scheme of things. I mean, I've had some good success with it. So I think there are some secondary motivation things that are great for it. I think that the intervention is relatively small and harmless. You know, if you have DNA fragmentation, I'm not saying, hey, guys, you need to get a urologist and go get a testicular biopsy. That may be the right thing for some people and may not be the right thing for others. But for our listener, this is the reason why you get different advice because different practitioners come at it from different experiences and different reasons why they do it. You know, to that end too, Susan, you may know this. Can't people go online? I thought you could order the DNA fragmentation yourself if you wanted to. At one point, you could order a kit and do it online without even involving a physician. Is that the case? Can you still do that or not? I think you can probably do it direct. I don't know. I, I mean, like I said, the, the way we do it, you can either do it collect and our office sends it off, or you can do it remotely at home and collect and send it straight to the company. Yeah. I don't know if you need a doctor's order for it. So it's worth looking at if your doctor won't do it. Yeah. And if it's something you're interested in doing. Okay. Next question. All right. Hi, doctor. Sorry for the long story. She's 24, husband's 29, married for five years and no pregnancies. At 20 years old, made her first fertility-related question to the GYN since they had been married for a year and hadn't used any birth control, though weren't in a hurry. And so OB-GYN said that due to age and physical health, likely to get pregnant pretty quick, just had to do it on the right days of my cycle. I'd like to add that, remember, they did had already been having unprotected sex for a year. A year went by and no baby, so two years. Now they're 21 changed in and asked again, doc ran tests and it looked normal, asked if she wanted to do Clomid. They said, yes, they did three rounds of 50 and then one rounds of a hundred, no baby. Husband's results were normal, referred to REI. And three years later, they've had 
three HSGs, one hysteroscopy to remove a polyp, all blood tests are on the positive side and in good shape, done two IUI cycles that have failed. Husband's semen analysis is great, about to do third IUI. Is there anything that they can do to help make this IUI work? Could I be doing anything that's not helping? Also, could we talk a little bit more about infertility in young couples? I feel it's not as common a topic. And therefore, um, when at such a young age, you hear the word infertility, it really scares you. Thank y'all. And I love your podcast. So it sounds like they've spent a lot of time, but have not actually done a whole lot above and beyond. Like it sounds like they've had about four-ish cycles of Clomid altogether. And now they're on their third IUIs. And that's the main fertility treatment that they've done over the past five years, besides timing cycles appropriately, having sex, like getting the basic workup done. So at this point, I think you are probably doing all that you need to be doing now that you are tapped into somebody who is actively be more aggressive with your treatment, which sounds like it's appropriate. I mean, of infertility in young patients still occurs. 15% of couples have infertility. And, and we see a lot of the numbers are skewed because the 35-year-olds hear your biological clock is ticking and they are on it. Not that you weren't on it, but everybody has that sense of impending pressure of, oh my gosh, we got to do something. When you are younger, there's a little bit more relaxed approach of, you have the time to figure it out and maybe give it instead of one year's two or three years to let it happen. And so some people tend to let it sit a little bit longer, although it sounds like you were actively trying to get treatment. It just maybe took a little longer to get there. Yeah. To the point though, that she's worried at 24, she's been trying for five years. I would be a little worried too, just because five years is a long, long time for anybody to try, particularly, and again, not to make her feel bad, but particularly in a really young woman, when I see couples, young couples that can't get pregnant, I usually think, okay, it's either a sperm issue or it's a tube issue because mm-hmm. usually young couples get pregnant pretty quickly. And so, you know, I guess the good news is you're young. So, I mean, you still have really young eggs and that's great. The bad news is nobody's really figured out the problem. And certainly depends on what your choices are and, you know, how quickly you want to get pregnant, which I know you wanted to get pregnant for a while. And also, you know, whether or not you have coverage, but, you know, I think at this point, if it were me, I would be moving toward IVF because I think there's something there that we can't put our finger on that we don't have a test for that's clearly causing some problem. Just because you're young doesn't mean there's not an egg issue. I see so many people exactly like this where they've been kind of poo-pooed by other doctors and like, oh, you're young, just go get drunk and, you know, have sex and you're going to get pregnant. It breaks my heart when people actually get that advice because I'm like, seriously, that's not advice. Yeah, I see lots of people who have been through a whole lot of treatment and sometimes from other REIs that because they were young, they have not had ovarian reserve actually documented. And so that's something I would make sure because just because you're young doesn't mean your ovaries are acting your age. Yeah. I mean, at this point, you've been doing this long enough. Like, let's make sure you've gotten everything tested. And then if, you know, another IUI or two done more, move on to be more aggressive because you want to get the best chance you can to build your family. Absolutely. All right. Hello. Thank you so much for the podcast. It's been so helpful to have reliable information about the process. And thank you so much for saying that. That's very sweet. Um, (laughs) I am 34, husband's 37, been trying to conceive for a few years. She has PCOS, husband has low motility. They've done a few cycles of letrozole with timed intercourse with confirmed ovulation, but not pregnancy. Clinic is starting to recommend IUI. To date, we have done very little testing. And when I listen to your podcast, you often refer to many tests we haven't done. The question is, what testing would you want to do before starting an IUI? Good question. 
Yeah, that is a good question. So the basics that I think pretty much all of us go for is, and and we approach this as before we're going to do any major interventional treatment, you want all the information because sometimes one piece of information will completely change how you approach things. And so we just get it all. So even if your history says nothing's the matter or your history points to one really specific thing, we get all those tests because we want to make sure we have the full picture and we can really look at it. So ovarian reserve testing your day three FSH, your antral follicle count, and your AMH level. You want your tube testing with an HSG or a hycosi. You want your uterus testing, oftentimes with a saline ultrasound or hysteroscopy, and you want your sperm testing. Those are the big four areas that we want information about because a major abnormality or even a minor abnormality. And get your thyroid tested too. Yeah. And well, the general blood work, Mm -hmm. thyroid, diabetes, prolactin, anemia, infection panel, like the routine stuff that you want to make sure is clear before you try and have a baby, get all that stuff tested so that the doc looking at you can say, here's the big picture you have, even if everything's normal and you have unexplained infertility that has its own diagnosis plans attached to it. And so let's know what we're working with so that we can make recommendations that are tailored to you. And as a patient, you can absolutely say, hey, listen, these are the things I'm interested in doing. And honestly, if you go to somebody who these basic things they're not willing to do, you might want to get another opinion beyond ours. Sometimes too, in states that don't mandate coverage, you're kind of between a little bit between a rock and a hard place because some patients want to do everything. Some patients don't want to do anything. They're like, how much does this cost? How much does this cost? So I think what I've learned over the years, is just best to just throw it all out, all out there and say, these are the things I think we need to do. And you know, if you don't want to do them immediately, we don't have to, but we need to put these things kind of at the top of our list when the time comes that you want to do them or can afford to do them. You know, if you're seeing an OBGYN, maybe a little hesitant just because of the cost issue. Absolutely. Well, y'all want to do one more? Yeah. Sure. All right. Good stuff. Hello. My husband and I have been trying to conceive for 15 months without a positive pregnancy test. I am 31 and he is 35. We've been through fertility testing and everything came back normal. However, RA did not test AMH or complete a saline sonogram. He said he doesn't feel those tests are necessary at this point and about to start medication for IUI. We have had progesterone, estradiol, FSH, and thyroid tested, as well as HSG, ultrasound, and semen analysis. RE also said my thyroid levels are normal with no need for medication. However, everything I read that TSH should really be below 2.5 for fertility. For reference, TSH was 3.22, T3, 3.3, T4, 1.1. Do I need to push for more testing? And is it really not necessary to reduce my TSH levels? So I'll take the TSH thing. So if your TSH is truly elevated, you should definitely be on thyroid supplementation. I take that gray zone, the 2.5 to 4.0, which is what my lab happens to be, as the area that I will test you for TPO antibodies. If you have presence of TPO antibodies in that situation, then I'll start you on some low-dose thyroid supplementation. If you don't have antibodies, then I'm just going to kind of periodically check your thyroid, make sure we're, we're not popping up above that truly abnormal range. What do you guys do? Fairly similar. Like check it. If it's grossly abnormal, they get treated. If it's in the gray zone, certainly if they have a miscarriage risk, it gets treated. I tend to be more inclined to say, just put them on a really mild dose. If they have antibodies for, you know, antibodies are more likely like 25 mics of levothyroxine is a pretty low dose. It's well tolerated. Okay, fine. In asking about the other things, the saline testing, 
when you're about to do an IUI, you can make the argument that you have had an HSG. So that shows the inside of your uterus to see whether or not there's any big polyps or fibroids. It's not the best test for that, but it still gives you that information. If something big will have shown up on that. Yeah. And and we typically don't require, or at least I don't require people to do both because that's a lot of expense and discomfort. So usually... If I'm actually concerned about polyps, I require somebody to do a saline. Well, and I would agree with that. If you're really concerned about something in the uterus, I would agree. But just the random patient who we want to do testing on, I would say, you know, either or worse, fine. And you've had one. Yeah. Like if you're going to do an IVF cycle, absolutely check it because the stakes are higher. Like I do typically require it on everybody just because... Both? uh, Both. Mostly because I've found a fair amount on one, but not the other. And patients get angry if you come back later and you say there's a polyp after they've done several cycles of IUI and they're like, well, did this keep me from getting pregnant? Maybe, maybe not, but it didn't help. Especially if you have risk factors, like if you have PCOS, you're not ovulating on a regular basis, you're increased risk of developing polyps. And our patients, a lot of people are overweight or obese. So if you got a few extra pounds on you, it's good to check it out. Yeah. You're much higher chance of having polyps if you're heavy. Yeah. If you're overweight, your fat tissue produces a form of estrogen. Your uterus is not picky. It likes estrogen any way, shape or form. And that can increase your risk of having polyps. So I I don't do saline's on everybody, but if you don't ovulate on a regular basis or you got a little extra weight on you, I generally do a saline because just like Carrie said, we don't want to do, you know, three or four cycles and then be like, oh, you had a huge polyp. And that's the reason why those IUI cycles didn't work. Yeah. Although I will say polyps can pop up pretty quickly too, particularly in heavier patients. You can see them, you know, sometimes every six months, you can see a new polyp that will pop up. Yeah. And with respect to the AMH level, I mean, if they have FSH and estradiol and they have a follicle count, the AMH is not going to change anything. So as long as they have some egg testing, then lack of that one test is not a make it or break it. No, but I I really like AMHs because I think FSH responds secondarily. Like in other words, your AMH comes from your ovary. And if you're not making eggs, you can pick that up probably a little earlier than you could the secondary response to like an abnormal FSH. So it's not written in stone, like Carrie said, but I personally like to get an AMH for sure. And it's a real, I mean, it's easy test. It can be done at any point in your cycle. And it's pretty cheap for most people too. All right. Cool beans. So to our audience, thank you so much for listening and be sure to tune in next week for more. Also be sure to subscribe to uh, iTunes, leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Instagram and Facebook. So hop on by, leave us a follow, leave us a like, and we'd love to hear from y'all. You can also visit us on fertilitydocsuncensored.com to submit specific questions. All questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously for the Ask the Doc segment, or even leave us an episode idea. Don't hold back. We'd love to hear from you. As always, this podcast is intended for entertainment and is not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. All right, we'll see you soon. Bye, guys. Bye. Today's podcast is also brought to you by California Cryobank. California Cryobank has 45 years of experience and a diverse selection of hundreds of highly screened sperm donors. They maintain the highest quality standards to give clients the best possible opportunity for a successful pregnancy with a client services team that supports you along the way. California Cryobank is offering Fertility Docs Uncensored listeners a special offer of a free level two subscription worth $145, which is a free 90-day subscription for access to extended donor profiles, including adult and childhood photos. Just use the code DOCS, that's D-O-C-S, at cryobank.com to find the right donor for you.